0: It's good to see you guys. I've missed you guys. I love you. I'm really happy to see you. Ventura, I can't see you, but I love you. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we're turning there, I'll just pray. Lord, we ask that you would so do a work of grace in us today that in our lives you would become the supreme treasure. That Jesus, we would be able to say about you that Besides you, there's nothing on earth that we desire, that your loving kindness is better than life, that we would believe today that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that we would rejoice in your goodness, your beauty, your kindness in the midst of difficulty and suffering, pain and heartbreak. We ask that today by your spirit, you'd cause us to love and adore you more than anyone or anything else, and that in your presence, we'd find great comfort and strength for the things that we are going through together and in our individual lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7. Speaking of the gospel says, but we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels, meaning something that is easily broken, frail human beings. We have this treasure of the gospel in easily broken human beings in order that the surpassing greatness of the power of, the power of that message and the truth of the gospel that we have performed poorly and deserve to die, but we have been treated kindly and given life in Christ. That the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus meaning that we keep with us at all times the fact that Christ died that he surrendered his will to the will of the father that in our place for our sakes Christ died. We carry that with us. We remember that. And we remember not only the cross, but Gethsemane where Christ surrendered his will to the will of the father, where Christ suffered. We're being confronted with his own sufferings. He was so overwhelmed that Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And yet came to that place where he said, not my will, but thy will be done. We carry this about with us, the fact that Christ died for us in order that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. His resurrection power, his victory over the devil, death, and sin, the newness of life and the hope of eternity, The fact that nothing can now separate us from the love of God. This treasure of the gospel we have in these earthen vessels that are easily broken because when we are most broken, Christ is most beautiful. And yet, even if we be broken, struck down we're not destroyed and yet I confess to you that my family feels destroyed I feel destroyed just a week ago I felt overjoyed we had suffered through eight months of cancer It seemed as though Daisy had beaten it. We had seen God do so much. We were celebrating. Daisy wanted to go to Hawaii. And so we went to Hawaii for a whole month as a family and did everything that Daisy wanted to do. She wanted to swing from vines. We found vines. She swung from them. She wanted to swim with turtles. We actually swam with turtles. We actually held on to turtles and swam with them. It was the best time of our lives. While we were there, Daisy was beginning to get stomach pain. And we thought she had too much shave ice. My wife put a ban on shave ice. I mean, who goes to Hawaii and can't eat shave ice? and it persisted. We thought it was constipation. We gave her laxatives and flaxseed so oil and all this stuff. She's pooping her little guts out. <laughs> the pain persisted. We got home on a Friday night, last Friday. Got back to our house at 1.30 in the morning. Kate and I left the house again Sunday morning at 4 a.m. to fly up to San Francisco where I was preaching at Reality San Francisco on Jesus being our greatest treasure and how the more difficult life becomes, the more beautiful Jesus looks. And I spoke about my daughter's previous battle with cancer and how we fell more in love with Jesus through that. And that night, my wife and I went out to dinner with some friends in San Francisco and our friend who was babysitting our kids called us and said, Daisy's stomach is really bad. She's in a lot of pain. We prayed and my wife had wisdom. She knew just what to do. We rushed to the airport, caught the last flight out of San Francisco into LA. Got home after midnight the next morning. Daisy was in a lot of pain. We took her to her pediatrician. We took one look and feel of her stomach and sent us immediately to the emergency room. There they did a CAT scan. And after waiting some time, our surgeon took us out into the hallway where the computer was and he pulled up the image of her CAT scan and there was a tumor. He looked at us and said, it's back. It's the size of a grapefruit. Her previous tumor she had had since birth, it took five years to grow to the size of a Nerf football. This one grew to the size of a grapefruit in eight weeks. For some reason, It was so much harder to hear than last time. I think because we had been through it and were so convinced that we were done with it. I had to go back into Daisy's room and tell her. To look into those eyes and to say, Your tumor is back. We wept. Kate and I wept uncontrollably on the floor. The first pray prayer that I prayed. I said, Jesus, we still trust you. We still trust you. They took her into surgery Wednesday morning, and they got a third of the tumor. The rest of it, they said, is inoperable. It's connected to her stomach and other major organs and her aorta. They performed the tests and got the pathology and it was somewhat favorable. Her tumor has what's called favorable histology, meaning it's responsive to chemotherapy as opposed to being anaplastic, which means it's nastier. and they told us that the rate of cure for her is 30 to 50%. So there's a 50 to 70% chance that she won't make it. Chances are she will not make it. I'm thankful that my God is not limited by statistics. And yet I also know God allows children to die. And we feel destroyed. We've had to tell ourselves by faith this week that though we are struck down, we're not destroyed. This was the first passage of Scripture I turned to. We've had to tell ourselves by faith we are not destroyed. My wife and I had to sit down and talk about this fact that only good things have come from Daisy's first battle with cancer. Innumerable good things have come from her first battle with cancer. She herself has a deep faith in God. She's a more beautiful, vibrant, joyful, happy, fun, vivacious little girl for having suffered. In my own life, I'm a better husband because of cancer. I'm a better father because of our suffering. I'm a better friend having suffered through this. I'm a better pastor having gone through my daughter's cancer. In some way, I think I'm a better follower of Jesus because of suffering. I love my wife more than I did before cancer. I love my kids more rightly than I did before. More rightly than I did before. I love the church of Jesus Christ far more than I did. I love Jesus more than I loved him before I suffered. And I am more in awe of the gospel that I've performed so poorly and I deserve death, but I've been treated so kindly and given life. I'm more in awe of that message and its truth and it daily penetrates my life to a greater degree and in a more vibrant way than before cancer and suffering. And I enjoy Jesus more on a daily basis than before we suffered. We've also heard that many people have gotten saved because of Daisy's story. We've heard from them. I don't know how that works. I don't know how they hear about a little girl and turn to Jesus, but we've heard their stories. We've heard of tons of prodigals coming home. We've heard of men and women who had stale Christian lives who never prayed, and somehow the Spirit of God came upon them to pray for our daughter, and their, the vibrancy of their Christian life has returned. My wife and I looked at each other this week and we were able to count and recount and say nothing but good and wonderful things have come from our suffering. Incredibly good things. Things that have made it worth it. So much so that repeatedly, the last couple months, my wife and I have said, as much as we have suffered and Daisy has suffered... And when your child suffers, it's more horrific than anything you can imagine. Somehow there's an analogy there. Somehow that's meaningful to humanity that God gave his son to suffer. That means something to humanity. When your child suffers, it's the most hideous thing you can imagine. And yet we've said to each other over and over again that we would do it again because of the fruit and the way we have experienced Jesus and seen him glorified in our pain. And we're doing it again. And because God takes our suffering and our pain and heartbreaking circumstances and bring so much beauty from it. We begin to understand and begin to be able to answer the question of why does God allow his people to suffer? Why when we come to Jesus is not all suffering just removed? Why as his redeemed people do we have to go through things like childhood cancer? the answer is that in these things, we are made better people and Christ is made more beautiful. And so as we're looking at cancer number two, we're believing that even if the worst takes place, even if Daisy doesn't make it, we believe that tremendous good is gonna come from it. It wouldn't make sense to believe anything else. This is what scripture tells us. And now our experience has confirmed this. Before we suffered with cancer, it was only theoretical and theological. Now it's practical and experiential. We believed it. But you believe it in a different way when you've lived it. We are saying that tremendous good is going to come from this because last year was the worst year of our lives and it was the best year of our lives. This year is going to be worse, but it's going to be better. And yet the pain is unbearable and it feels like we are destroyed, but we're not. I was reading my utmost for his highest two days ago by Oswald Chambers, a yearly devotional. Part of that day's reading, he said, At times, God will appear like an unkind friend, but he is not. He will appear like an unnatural father, but he is not. He will appear like an unjust judge, but he is not. God appears to be all those things in our lives this week, but he's not. God is good, God is wonderful, he is the greatest treasure of our lives that we might be able to say, as Job said, even though you slay me, I will trust in you. We feel slayed, but we will trust in him. He has proven himself to be of supreme value. I mentioned before that I feel that I'm a better husband having suffered, and I know that Kate is a better wife And so we have a better marriage having suffered. We always had a good marriage. I would say a great marriage, but it's better because of our difficulties. For most of Kate and I's married life, we only knew success. We had health and good health. When we were in business, we did well in business. When we... We're in the ministry. We were blessed by God's grace in the ministry and it's been successful, wildly successful in the ministry. And we had two healthy children and they're beautiful and bright. We've just known a lot of success. But what I'm beginning to realize is that success does not bond people together. If success... Created deep bonds between people the Beatles never would have broken up. <laughs> what brings a deep and beautiful bond is adversity. Ask a soldier how he loves the men that he's fought on the front lines with. There is a way that adversity creates a deep bond that success fails to do. The most successful businessmen don't feel bound to each other in the way that the most battle-worn soldiers do. Humanity understands this. Adversity bonds people together. and My wife and I have a deeper more beautiful love and relationship than before we suffered. Adversity bears fruit in a way that success simply can't do. In Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. That was a great success. 5,000 hungry men and their families And they only had a few loaves and a few fish. And Jesus multiplies miraculously the loaves and the fish. And he feeds the multitudes. It was this great and enormous success. And immediately after that, he tells his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side. Literally in the Greek, he forces, he compels them. A military type command to get in the boat and go to the other side. He refuses to go with them. He stays on shore and he sends them out into the lake. And when they go there, this giant storm comes. And they're in the sea, despairing of their lives until the early morning hours, all night long. Literally in the Greek, the boat was under the waves. These are experienced fishermen. They're despairing of their lives. They're sinking. The storm is no coincidence. It's not as though Jesus is standing on the beach going, oh no, I didn't know that would happen. This was a God storm. This was a God-ordained storm. And we're told about this in Mark 6, starting in verse 51. It says, and when Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, they were astonished. I want you to hear verse 52. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They had not gained any insight into the person of Jesus from the incident of the loaves, from the miraculous, from the successful. Rather, their hearts were hardened in some strange way. They didn't gain a deeper appreciation, insight, understanding, love, adoration, exaltation of Jesus in the moment of success and miraculous display. God in His kindness understood that only a period of time in the storm would give them the insight where they could see Jesus more clearly. And so it says in Matthew 14 that when Jesus got in the boat and the wind stopped, that they worshipped him. They had never worshipped him before. They'd seen him raise the dead, open the eyes of the blind, cause the lame to walk. None of these things had ever moved the disciples to worship. It wasn't until they had been through the storm that they gained insight, saw Jesus more clearly in such a way that it moved them to worship. I want you to notice that Jesus got in the boat and then they were astonished and worshiped. The salient point is not merely that the wind and the waves stopped, but it was the presence of the person of Christ in their pain. In some ways, there's just more insight to be gained in adversity than there is in success. And I've often wondered if the Lord would not have been more glorified if he simply would have miraculously healed my daughter's first tumor. And I have, and we have a theology that says God can do that. We believe that God does miracles today. And we asked God to do that. And thousands of people around the world were asking God to do that. And we anointed her with oil and prayed over her. And again, I've brought the elders of the church to the hospital. We've anointed her with oil. We've prayed for her. We're asking God to do that. I believe that God can do that. I've seen God remove cancerous tumors in my own family before. but having gone through it, my personal testimony is that I've seen God get more glory and be loved more by us in suffering than in a miracle. And as a church, We've had together a lot of success since we've been together. Wild success. By God's grace, for God's glory, he's done incredible things in us, with us, and through us. And as one of the pastors at this church, my hope now is having experienced so much success that now in experiencing more adversity, we would see Jesus more clearly that would bring us into a place where we would treasure him in a greater way. And it's not just that Daisy is suffering. I'm not the only parent in the church with a sick child. We're not the only family who's dealing with cancer. But perhaps by God's grace, Daisy can serve as a rallying point because she's one person, one of the few people in the church that we all know and that we all love And so maybe she can just be a rallying point where we can move into this deeper truth of seeing Jesus more clearly in adversity as a church than we've ever seen him in success. Realizing that when one member of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer together. And so many of us are suffering. And the great hope here is that we would be refined in our suffering in such a way that Jesus would become greater to us, in us and through us for His glory. And that the church wouldn't be about our success or a popular speaker or any other thing, but Jesus his love for us, and then our love for one another. And that we, as we suffer together, would we'll be bound together in a new and fresh and powerful way that we become a more loving, vibrant, alive, caring, connected, Christ-honoring church than we've ever been before because of adversity. And for these reasons, because adversity bears fruit, and creates bonds in a way that success fails to do. We need to be able to ask along with Job, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Somehow Job understood that if we're going to accept God's blessings, we also need to be able to accept the difficulties. Humanity just wants blessings. They just want God to be the genie in the bottle. But God is a Father who knows what's best. He's a good father who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And he's a God who is sovereign and in control and can take the worst circumstances and work them for good. Who can take the ashes of our lives and bring beauty. Who brings new life where things seem to be dying. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? We've also had to remind ourselves this week that what we're going through is not unique. When this happens, you you feel alone. I was sitting in my office this morning after first service watching people come to church with their kids and families walking in and you just feel like everyone else is okay. Okay. Their kids are healthy. Their kids are here. Why are we the only ones going through this? But that's never true. That's never true. New Testament reminds us in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised. As though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Even when we suffer as Christ suffered, we should be rejoicing because of who Christ is and what He's done and what He will do. So that also at the revelation of His glory, when He comes to set right every wrong, you may rejoice with exaltation, super rejoicing. We rejoice in our suffering. And when Christ comes to set right every wrong, we will rejoice even more. But we ought not to think it's strange or unique when we go through difficulties. It's common to the human experience, even God's people. My wife and I have had to look at each other this week and say, kids die every day. Parents lose children every day. And though we feel struck down and crushed and destroyed, we are not. And how selfish and wrong would it be to think that when my daughter is dying, that all of a sudden God isn't good? When thousands of children are dying every single day, was I to say God was good when their child was dying? But to somehow now disbelieve that because it's my own child how selfish and wrong and arrogant would that be When we suffer in this lifetime we need to keep a few things in perspective number 1 Romans 8:28 God works all things together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose God works all things, even the worst things, together for good for his people. We need to keep that in focus. I want to testify to you that that's been our experience, that we've seen God do that in the worst year of our lives. And now as things have gotten much worse, we're expecting God to do that again, whether it's life or death. Because God is redemptive. That's what God does. And if we're unable to see that, if we're so struggling with our difficulties that we we can't possibly see or think or imagine the good that can come from it, then we need to keep this in perspective. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory we shall see. As difficult as it gets in this lifetime, We have the promise and the hope of eternal life with Christ. And the worst horrors that we can imagine in this life are not even worthy to be compared with how wonderful it will be to be with Christ. Not worthy to be compared. And we cling to these things and I'm clinging to these things right now that God is going to work good in this lifetime. And that these things someday shall pass and they won't even be worthy of mentioning in light of seeing Jesus, I believe it. And then we bring those things together with this truth, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. That time where Christ himself will set right every wrong and he'll be with us in the boat of pain in the storm that day is coming. You see, God has never promised us that we won't suffer in this lifetime. In fact, he's made it explicit in the word of God that we will suffer in this lifetime. But there is coming a day in the renewal of all things in the fullness of Christ's presence, where because of his person, because of his presence, there will be no more tears. He himself will wipe them away. No more crying, mourning, pain, no more cancer, no more death. There is coming that day. And this week, that day has felt to me the way that Christmas used to feel when you were a kid. You remember the anticipation of Christmas when you were a child? It was so wonderful to look forward to Christmas. Because when you're a kid, there's so many things that you want. Your list is just limitless of the things that you want. You know, when you get older and you get some money and you buy it for yourself all throughout the year and there's nothing really you need at Christmas time and so it loses that excitement. But when you're a kid, that anticipation of Christmas because of what you're going to gain, and it's so fun to look forward to it and move toward it and rejoice in it. And this day when Christ will set right every wrong and wipe away every tear is feeling to me like Christmas for a little kid. I'm so excited for it, it brings me such joy. No little kid is sad that Christmas is coming. They're excited that Christmas is coming. I have joy in the pain because I will gain in a new way the present of Jesus himself. It's not the healing of my daughter that I treasure. It's not merely the freedom of sick from sickness or pain or mourning or death. It's the person of Jesus himself that makes Christmas Christmas and the new heaven and the new earth brand new. And then holding on to these things when we all suffer in life will allow us to be the kind of person that Job was. In Job chapter one, he got Horrible news after horrible news after horrible news. His entire family, all of his kids were wiped out. All of his belongings, all of his wealth, it was all wiped out in a day. And it says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. That's how they mourned then. But look what he did. And worshipped. That's the man that I want to be. I want to be the kind of man that the more I lose, the more I worship God because the more I lose in this world, the more of a treasure he becomes to me in this moment. And Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In my daily prayers, verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. It's the kind of people we need to be in suffering. Shall we indeed take the good and not adversity? Has God not warned us that in this world we would have difficulty? But take heart, he has overcome the world and there is coming a new day. And I want to tell you, church, that Jesus is more present in our brokenness. The gospel is more real and on greater display when we are broken than at any other time. And should God miraculously heal my daughter? Glory be to God. And should we suffer? And should she go to be with him? Glory be to God. Because I've learned in suffering that God himself is the greatest treasure. And I need to tell you that my six-year-old daughter has learned the same thing in her suffering. The night before last, unprompted by me, Daisy Love said this, quote, People are only one times important. And God is, is like a thousand, million, billion Googleplex important. (laughs) I don't know how she even knows what a Googleplex is. I don't know what a Googleplex is. But somehow this six-year-old having suffered knows more than most Christians ever realize. That people are one times important, but God is a thousand million billion Googleplex times important. And he loves us, and he loves you, and he hears our prayers, and he cares more than we could ever imagine, and we trust him enough to go through Gethsemane and sweat blood and say, nevertheless, thy will be done in life and in death for your glory. My pastor, Pastor G, is going to come lead us in prayer.